we're going to continue on with Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature. We're on chapter 14 now. Right? And we will have sessions um, every Friday until we leave for Taiwan. And then things will switch again. And Venerable Sepal will announce what's happening. No, later. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, start with visualizing the merit field. And have a sense of joy for being able to hear these teachings. So we'll be talking about the Buddha potential or Buddha nature, Tathagatakarpa, and it is related to bodhicitta because in order to realize bodhicitta, we have to have the Buddha potential. So knowing that we have that potential it gives us confidence that we can develop bodhicitta. And also because all living beings have the Buddha nature. When we generate bodhicitta, and while we're on the path, and when we attain the result in Buddhahood, do actions to benefit others, we can be assured that those actions will have some positive effect on others because they have the Buddha nature. So with this kind of understanding, we don't put ourselves down and we don't put others down. And that makes for a life that is much more peaceful here and now. It makes for a life that creates virtuous karma and ensures that we're able to continue our Dharma practice in future lives. And it also is the support for our eventual awakening and for the uh, 
fact that what we will exercise as Buddhas with the Buddha's awakening influence, that that will have a good effect on sentient beings. So that we are confident also that attaining awakening is worthwhile for ourselves and for others. So after last week's teaching, somebody went back and reflected on the quest, you know, the uh, the teachings, and wrote me an email with lots of questions. And uh, in looking through the questions, what was confusing to that person, what I think it comes down to is we need to first understand just very generally, the two truths, you know, and how the two truths apply to Buddha nature. Okay. Because otherwise we're talking about the conventional mind and the emptiness of the conventional mind and the mind uh, where the uh, the um, afflictions are adventitious and, you know, how different things can be purified. Okay, so there are two truths, yeah? The word truth means different things in different circumstances, okay? Because of the two truths, the veiled truths, what's often called conventional truths, Jeffrey calls them veiled, and the ultimate truths, okay? Veiled truths are so-called because the... Uh, grasping at true existence and the appearance of true existence veil us from seeing those objects exactly as they are, how they actually exist. Okay, so when we look at things, they appear to us inherently existent. Huh? And we operate on that basis. And we don't, the, the emptiness, the actual way that the things exist is veiled to us. Okay. So you have the veiled truths. Their ultimate nature, how they actually exist. Okay. Is there too, but those are two different natures on the basis of the same object. Okay. So those two natures, you know, the convention, we could say that, let's say the conventional mind, uh, and the, or the, the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, that's the conventional mind, and the emptiness of that mind. They're one nature, one nature meaning that if one of them's there, the other one's going to be there too, at least during some, if not all, of the time of the existence of the first one. Okay? So if you have uh, the conventional nature, the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, you're also going to have the empty nature of that mind. 
Okay, those two, you can't break them apart and have one without the other. Yeah, but when you, us ordinary beings, when we are seeing a veiled object or a conventional object, we can't at the same time see its ultimate nature because the veiling is the appearance and the grasping at true existence. The ultimate nature is the absence of true existence. So you can't perceive, us ordinary beings cannot perceive those two very opposite things at the same time. So it's just important to recognize that the mind has these, you know, we talk about these two natures, yeah. And I think if you keep that in mind, then when we say um, the empty nature is defiled if the conventional nature of the mind uh, has afflictions, then it makes some sense. Okay, getting what I'm saying? Yeah, because that ultimate nature by itself is not afflicted, but because it is one nature with that afflicted mind. If the mind is afflicted, then we we say that the nature, the emptiness of the mind is also afflicted. Okay. But if we look at it in, in another way, you know, emptiness uh, is unafflicted in the sense that whoever perceives it directly, non-conceptually, yeah, sees it exactly the way it is, and uh, the emptiness of all the different things appears in the same way to uh, to that mind. Okay, so we talk about the emptiness of different objects being undifferentiable. Okay, that's next to supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Undifferentiable, yeah, uh, because emptiness is emptiness, and if you perceive emptiness directly, it doesn't matter what is the emptiness of, it appears as emptiness, and you understand emptiness, okay? But from the viewpoint of the object, that, that emptiness is the ultimate nature of, then there's going to be some differences. Okay, so with that understanding, let's come back to what we were discussing about Buddha nature. So we're on chapter 14. Uh, anybody recognize the picture? Anybody know where that picture was taken? Where? Yeah, it's at the Mahabodhi Stupa. Okay. Okay, so volume one of this series, Approaching the Buddhist Path, introduced the three turnings of the Dharma wheel and briefly described the presentation of true cessation and true path in each. I would now like to review and then expand on this topic and its relationship to Buddha nature. So here you have His Holiness, how he often does. He circles around to different things and something that, you know, the topic of the three turnings isn't necessarily so simple, but he talked about it at the beginning, and now he wants to go into more depth about it. And, you know, so this way of weaving many, many different topics together 
And, uh, you know, you can see the brilliance of his mind when he teaches how he does that. So we should also, uh, when we, you know, do Lam Rim meditation and when we reflect on the teachings, you know, see how what we're reflecting on relates to other topics that we've learned about. Okay, so the three turnings of the Dharma wheel and Buddha nature. So the first turning of the Dharma wheel presents the overall structure of the Buddhist worldview based on the four truths. Okay, so it presents the four truths and the 16 aspects. Yeah. And uh, if you forgot what the 16 are, they're uh, in this earlier in this volume. Okay, good to review them. Um, the second turning of the Dharma wheel contains a more detailed explanation of the third and fourth truths, in other words, true cessation and true paths. And uh, the second turning also presents the emptiness of inherent existence and the bodhisattva path. So the second turning is the where you have the Prashnaparamita Sutras. Okay. Then the essence of the third uh, truth, true cessation, is understood in the context of the emptiness of the mind. So that's in the third, and uh, the second, um, second turning. Then the fourth truth, true paths, is the wisdom realizing that emptiness. Okay, so it, we learn the wisdom realizing emptiness, and then we learn the true cessation, and true cessation boils down to the emptiness of a completely purified mind. Okay, so we can see a progression. The first turning of the Dharma wheel discusses selflessness, in a general way. So, you know, there's, there's no permanent partness, partless independent self. There's no self-sufficient, substantially existent self. Okay. That's the general way. Having described the nature or identity of each teaching truth, of each truth and the way to engage with it, the Buddha explained the resultant understanding of each truth. Here he said, that true cessation is to be actualized, but there is nothing to actualize. Similarly, around when he talked about, well, all four of them, he said that, you know, true, uh, true dukkha is to be recognized, but there's nothing to recognize. And true origins are to be, uh, eliminated, but there's nothing to eliminate. Uh, true um, cessations are to be actualized, but there's nothing to actualize. And true paths are to be realized, but there's nothing to realize. Okay, so we hear that, and we go, what in the world? It's so contradictory. Whenever you read Nagarjuna or these, you know, the second turning, it never makes any sense. Okay. What is being left out in those quotations, yeah, 
when it says there's nothing to realize. It means there is no inherently existent thing to realize. There's, uh, there's, uh, with true suffering, there's no inherently existent dukkha. There's no inherently existent causes. There are no inherently existent cessation, no inherently existent path. So that's, that's what the meaning is. Okay. So we say that it sounds great, but we don't really understand what it means. Yeah. I mean, it's not truly existent. Does it exist? Yeah. If it's not really the path from its own side, then how does it work? How can it function? Yeah. So these are these questions that people have been asking for many centuries. Yeah. If something doesn't truly exist, how can it function? And Nagarjuna says, if it does truly exist, then how can it function? In other words, it can't. Okay, so that's another koan, you know, kind of short things. Sit and ponder them. There's a lot in that. Okay, in the second turning of the Dharma wheel, the Buddha clarified that the precise meaning of selflessness is the emptiness of inherent existence, the unborn nature. Okay, we hear unborn. Yeah, what do we think of? Oh, did they legalize abortion? (laughs) No, we're not talking about that. Unborn means that it, it didn't arise, okay, but... Yeah, the mind arises, the mind is produced, but it is not inherently produced. Nothing inherently arises. So when it says unborn, it means, you know, that the arising of something is done dependently, it's not done inherently. Okay? And for those of you who have studied a little bit, then you know that things are not produced by self, other, both, or causelessly. Yeah, that sounds great. You say, what do you mean? They're not produced by self, other, both, or causeless. That means they're not produced at all. Okay, well, we're jumping. We have to understand it. It means they're not inherently produced. Okay, so the Buddha also described the wisdom realizing this unborn nature. Here, he called it objectless or non-objectifying wisdom because it has ceased the apprehension of any objectifiable basis or inherent existence in persons and phenomena. Okay, so we say migmei tsewe, terchenchenresi, migmei, that's the, the words here, okay, not non-objectifying, no object. It means no inherently existent object. So there's no objective existence out there that is independent of our mind or of anything else. Yeah. So in the case of Sankhapa, when we say yeah, we're talking about compassion yeah, that 
doesn't see inherently existent sentient beings. It sees sentient beings as empty. Yeah. If you read from time to time the quotation in our foyer, yeah, that quotation, you know, from Chandrakirti is talking about three kinds of compassion. And the last one is the non-objectifying compassion. Yeah, that sees sentient beings as empty of inherent existence. Yeah. And if you see sentient beings like that, then your compassion is going to be so much stronger because then you see, okay, sentient beings are not inherently existent. Nothing is inherently existent. But why do people suffer so much? Because we grasp at inherent existence, which doesn't exist at all. Okay? And so to see how how much sentient beings suffer and how the root of this is this grasping at what does not exist. Yeah? And that 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 grasping is what we have to be free of, you know? And that's what is causing not only our dukkha, but sentient beings' dukkha, all of us revolving in samsara. Okay, so think about that one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it helps developing compassion that way. So the perfection of wisdom sutras, which were taught in the second turning, and the ornament of clear realizations, a commentary by Maitreya on these sutras, that's what SK, Venerable Sankhya is teaching from, so uh, they they explain the Tathagatagarbha, the Buddha essence, yeah, or nature, from the perspective of it being the ultimate nature of the mind, the emptiness of the mind. Okay, so here he's his is talking from a sutra viewpoint, the perfection of wisdom sutras, and they speak about the Tathagatagarbha from the view of it being the emptiness of the mind. Yeah, and we've already gone through that. We know that that's one way of presenting it. Okay. But, or and, the third turning of the Dharma wheel delves deeper. Now, the third turning of the Dharma wheel, it presents two main things, and it's easy to get confused here. One of the things that is presented in the third turning is the Yogacara view, the Chitta view. And the idea there being that some beings heard the second turning of the wheel, and where the Buddha talked about nothing being inherently existent, and said, that's too much. <laughs> you know, that's just, that, that's too much. Yeah, it's out of sight. So the Buddha taught the Chinamadra, the Yogacara viewpoint, as a way of uh, making it easier for people like that so that they don't fall to nihilism, okay? But they still have some idea that 
what appears to the mind as false and things lack, you know, that that false appearance. It's just in Chitta Madra, what's the false appearance? Things being uh, objects that are external to the mind, meaning that they have a different substantial cause than the mind that is cognizing them. Okay? So that's one thing taught in the third wheel. Yeah? And so you, you, you heard that a lot when we had the the seminar with Jay, and he was always, you know, he went through Vasubandhu's thing. Yeah, okay, that's all from the, the third wheel. And also in the third wheel, the Buddha talked about the Tathagatagarbha, yeah, but from a different viewpoint. In the second turning, he talked about it from the viewpoint of it being the emptiness of the mind. In the third turning, he talked about it from the v- viewpoint of it being the subjective mind that realizes emptiness. Okay, so emptiness is the object, the mind is the subject. Yeah, the cognizing consciousness. Yeah, the word subject in English is confusing because subject could mean topic which could mean the, the object that you're investigating, too. So it's, you know, here. And then some people translate it as the subjective mind, but that translation is very misleading, misleading because it makes it sound like, you know, there's no such thing as a, as a reliable cognizer because everything's subjective. So it's not... When it's, they say subjective mind, it doesn't mean the mind is subjective. What it means is they're talking about the subject, the mind. So I try and translate it like that, the subject, the mind. Yeah, but if you run across subjective mind, which I'm sure you will at some point, um, that's what it means. I have to teach you wrong translations so that you'll under, understand them when you meet them. Okay. So, um, the purified, the third turning of the, of the Dharma wheel delves deeper. The purified aspect of the emptiness of the mind is true cessation. But what mind is the basis of that emptiness? So what mind is it the emptiness of, okay. The ordinary mind we have at present, which is the basis of all our afflictions, is not that mind. In other words, if they're going to talk about the Buddha nature, yeah, and the the emptiness of that mind being true cessation, they're they're not talking about our ordinary day-to-day mind that is filled with afflictions and you know, ruminations and dreaming up fantasies and, you know, all the usual stuff, okay? We're not talking about that mind. We're not talking about our sense consciousnesses. They can't be the basis of the emptiness of a mind that is the true cessation because the sense consciousnesses don't continue, you know? 
when we go to sleep, they're not working. When we die, they don't work. So they're not some kind of continuous consciousness. Yeah, they're not stable. They're not continuous. And to talk about Buddha nature, you need something stable, not something that's, you know, functioning when you open your eyes and stops functioning when you close them. Okay. So, um, nor can afflictive minds such as ignorance be that basis because the continuity of ignorance is not present at Buddhahood and thus the emptiness of ignorance is also absent then. Okay. So if we're going to talk about the subject mind that is the Buddha nature, yeah, it has to be something that's continuous and it has to be something that's not, that's free of all afflictions because its emptiness has to be the true cessation. Okay? So the mind that is the basis for true cessation must be a pure mind, pure in that the afflictions have not entered into its nature. So the mind must be beginningless and endless because its continuum must go without interruption to Buddhahood and become a Buddha's mind. Yeah, so the continuum of some mind we have now has to go on to Buddhahood. Yeah, and that's part of the Buddha nature. So what mind could that be? It's not our sense consciousnesses. It's not our mind that's anxious and worried and ruminating and angry and attached. It's not the ordinary mind going, uh, you know, when do I have to pay my taxes by? Uh, it's, there's something special about this mind. So this mind is the clear light mind that be, can become a liberating path. The subject clear light realizing the object clear light, the emptiness of the mind. Okay, so remember when we talk about clear light, clear light has many different meanings depending on the situation. So clear light can refer to a consciousness yeah, clear light can also refer to emptiness. So you have to see how the words are being used to figure out what it is. So here, the mind is the clear light mind that can become a liberating path. Okay, how many of you were here when we did Paths and Grounds, the Salam? Okay, so some of you, not all of you. Yeah. When we talked about Salam, yeah, and the paths and grounds, you know, whereby you go from being an ordinary being to either being an Arhat or to a Buddha, yeah, it, um, yeah, when, when we talk about that, we talk about uninterrupted, uh, minds, and liberating minds, okay? 
So our uninterrupted path and liberating path. When we talk about paths in Salam, a path is a consciousness. We think, oh, follow the path, like you go to Buddhahood and here's a path, you know, like the muddy one that's right out there, you know, except cleaner, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, a path means consciousness, yeah. So when we are on, okay, the path of seeing is when you have your first direct non-conceptual apprehension of emptiness, okay, because it's a mind that directly apprehends emptiness, it will have the power to start to remove some of the afflictions. So on the path of seeing, it has the power to remove the um, the acquired afflictions. When you get to the path of meditation, then it starts removing the innate afflictions. As you go through the ten grounds on the bodhisattva path, each ground eliminates more afflictions according to the strength of that mind realizing emptiness. So the mind, we have to have a continuum that goes without interruption to Buddhahood and becomes a Buddhist mind. So that is the clear light mind that can become a liberating path. Yeah, a liberating path is coupled with uninterrupted path. Okay. Uninterrupted path is when, let's say in the path of seeing, is the first moment, not, not instant, but the first time period in which you are uh, realizing emptiness directly. Okay. So that's called an uninterrupted path because it is the, it is in the process of eliminating the afflictive um i'm sorry the uh the acquired afflictions yeah yeah and it goes without interruption yeah it's in the process of eliminating those afflictions when it has finished eliminating them then it, it, without interruption, it becomes the liberating path, meaning that the consciousness of that person is liberated from that set of particular afflictions that were to be eliminated, in this case, on the path of seeing, on the path of meditation, on the different grounds, it's going to be different levels of afflictions. Okay? So it has to be a consciousness yeah, that that can be a liberating path, a consciousness that has removed afflictions such that they cannot return. Yeah, and it has to be a mind that's directly perceiving emptiness. So that's telling us a lot about that mind. <laughs> okay, so it's the clear light mind that can become a liberating path. The subject clear light realizing the object clear light, which is the emptiness of the mind. Okay? And it's the emptiness of that very mind. 
So the mind is realizing its own emptiness. Yeah. While the second turning speaks of Tathagatagarbha primarily as the object emptiness, the third turning presents it as the subject, the clear light mind that can realize emptiness, which is also the basis of that emptiness. When it talks about the basis of emptiness, it means the thing that uh, we're talking about the emptiness of. That's the basis of that emptiness. So in this way, the second turning of the Dharma wheel gives a thorough account of emptiness, the third truth, true cessation, while the third turning of the Dharma wheel presents a thorough explanation of the fourth truth, true paths. Okay, Here the Buddha introduces the clear light mind a mind that has always been and will continue to be pure. However, he does not explain how to access and realize that mind. Where can we find a deeper explanation of the clear light mind and the method to actualize it? Okay, This is the key that opens the door to Tantra. A disciple who wants to learn about the mind in more depth cannot find the explanation in the Sutrayana path, so she is automatically drawn to Tantra. Okay, so this is important, you know, and especially the way His Holiness is presenting this, you know, because uh, at least all the Mahayana schools will talk about the um the three turnings of the dharma wheel yeah but only you know and and the third turning does not explicitly mention tantra but his holiness is saying it's in there and even though buddha didn't say it out loud it's in there and if you have sharp faculty uh disciples they will realize that and they will begin they will enter the tantric vehicle so that they can begin to understand what that subject, the clear light mind, is. Okay. So I've heard a few people say, you know, uh, tantra is weird. I'm not interested in tantra. I, I have some... Uh, <laughs> this towards it, yeah, some rejection towards it. Okay, so to those people who say that, I have the question, do you know what Tantra is? Have have you studied any of the texts or heard teachings on what the, the uh, why the Buddha taught Tantra? and the special qualities of Tantra? Is it on the basis of understanding something about Tantra that you then reject it? Yeah, I don't think so. It's on the basis of not knowing what it is and maybe seeing a few things 
or hearing a few things that are not explained well and then generating an opinion. And if you say, I'm not interested in it, it's, uh, you know, that's planting seeds in your own mind stream that are going to obscure you from entering the tantric vehicle when you're ready. Okay? So it's much better to say, I don't understand tantra. I'm not ready for it right now. So I'm really engaging in the sutra path. But have that respect for it. Yeah? If for no other reason than His Holiness and the teachers that we admire practice it and have respect for it. Yeah, you may not understand it, but, you know, there's people that you trust who say, "Mm, you know, there's something in here. Yeah. And then just bide your time, and when you're ready, then you can, you know, enter it. Okay? This paragraph that you just went through, is this explanation the way it would be taught from the sublime continuum? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get into that. Yeah. Sublime Continuum talks about the subject, clear light, yeah, as well. Okay. So a disciple who wants to learn more about this mind that is capable of becoming a liberated path, yeah, will, uh, cannot find that explanation in sutra. So they have to look in tantra. Of the first four classes of tantra, the first three are preparations for the fourth, the highest yoga tantra, which contains the real meaning of tantra. The highest yoga tantra provides a clear explanation about how to access the fundamental innate clear light mind, utilize it, and transform it into a virtuous mental state, a true path that realizes emptiness. The development of this wisdom mind culminates in the state of union, the state of full awakening described in Tantra. Okay, so Tantra is important for for this reason. Yeah. From this perspective, Nagarjuna's commentary on Bodhicitta, which was the text His Holiness taught in Bogaya, not this last December, but the previous December. Um, okay, so... From this perspective, Nagarjuna's commentary of Bodhicitta can be seen as a commentary on the third turning because it unpacks the meaning of a verse from the Guya Samaja root tantra. Here's the verse, which is the first thing in Nagarjuna's text, but it comes from the tantra. Devoid of all real entities, utterly discarding all objects and subjects, such as aggregates, elements, and sense sources. 
Due to sameness of selflessness of all phenomena, one's mind is primordially unborn. It is in the nature of emptiness. Okay. So it's one of those verses where you have to sit down and think, what in the world is he saying? Okay. So devoid of all real entities, nothing is inherently existent. Yeah. Utterly discarding all objects and subjects. You know, my understanding is it means that of any perception, you're seeing that neither the object nor the subject is truly existent. Yeah. So what are those objects and subjects? The aggregates, the elements, the sense sources, everything that composes who we are as a person. Okay. And that is emphasizing the sameness of selflessness of all phenomena. So all those conventional things that compose us, our aggregates, if you perceive their emptiness, that emptiness is the same. One's mind is primordially unborn. It is in the nature of emptiness. So primordially unborn. The mind has never been truly existent or inherently existent. Okay. So when we realize emptiness, we're not changing the nature of the mind. Okay. The mind is the mind. We're not taking something away from it. We're not adding something to it. We're just realizing its ultimate nature. Okay. This is going to come up a little later. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, you realize emptiness and, you know, you're adding some salt, you know, to make the, the flavor better or, you know, something like that. You're not uh, changing the nature of the mind at all. Uh-huh. Okay, similarly, Nagarjuna prays to the sphere of reality, which was the text that His Holiness taught this December, uh, comments primarily on the subject matter of the third turning, the subjective clear light mind, but hence at the meaning of clear light mind as explained in Tantra. So His Holiness is dropping these little hints that are pretty obvious, saying, you know, if you really want to understand what the mind is, you have to look deeper than just the mind, the mind as we talk about it in Sutra. Okay. So here's some more from Nagarjuna. This is a beautiful, um, yeah, analogy. Just as asbestos cloth that is filthy with all kinds of dirt, when put into fire, the filth is burnt, but not the cloth. Similarly, it is the case with the clear light mind, which has defilements produced by attachment, 
The fire of pristine wisdom burns the defilements, but not that clear light mind. Okay, so asbestos cloth, apparently, I haven't tried this out. Has any has anybody ever worked with asbestos cloth? Yeah, what in what context? In ancient distant memory, I think this is right, that asbestos cloth, like when, when your grandfather was grilling out on the, there was an asbestos cloth that was part of the grill equipment that would get all greasy and gross, and how they do it is they just burn it all off. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. 1950s. Okay. My grandpa didn't do that. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So asbestos cloth, apparently, I mean, yeah, it's there. You can get it totally filthy. Yeah. And the way you clean it is you throw it in the fire. Most things, you throw it in the fire, the whole thing. You know, if I want to wash my chugu, that way I'm going to wind up without a chugu afterwards. Okay. But with asbestos cloth, the dirt burns, but the cloth remains. So the uh, the uh, analogy is with the mind, yeah, our mind right now is covered by defilements. When we have the subject clear light mind that realizes emptiness directly, yeah, it functions like the fire. It burns the defilements from the mind, but the clear light nature of that mind still is there. It doesn't destroy the mind. Yeah, some people think you get rid of of afflictions, then the mind stops. Actually, you know, for for some Theravada practitioners, they say that when you've eliminated the um, afflictive obscurations, then, uh, you know, the mind ceases because there's no craving to make it be reborn. And and so when the person attains arhatship, it's an arhatship without the remainder of the, the, all the aggregates disappear, the person doesn't exist anymore. Okay, which, of course, the Mahayanas refute because they say, how can you talk about the, um, uh, say that so-and-so has attained uh, um, the, the, the third truth, okay, and how can you say that they've realized emptiness? Um, if there's no person there, if all the, if you're saying all the afflictions are eliminated, so there's no person left, then who is it that attained nirvana? How can you have nirvana without having a person that's attained it? Okay, so that's one of the refutations. That's a little going off subject, but it comes in handy to understand that. Okay. So similarly, it's the case with the clear light mind, which has defilements produced. Here it says attachment. It means craving, okay? Because remember when we're talking about the four truths, the example of the first one, no, the example of the second one is craving, isn't it? It's not ignorance. It's craving. Okay. So, the case with the clear light mind, which 
has defilements produced by craving, the fire of the pristine wisdom that realizes emptiness directly burns the defilements, but not that clear light mind. So when fireproof asbestos cloth is put in fire, the stains in it burn until they disappear completely, but the cloth remains untouched. Likewise, when the ordinary mind of sentient beings, the clear light mind, is exposed to the realization of emptiness, the stains on the mind, attachment and so forth, are removed, but the clear light mind remains. Right there in that paragraph, we're talking about clear light. In Are we talking about it in both senses? Like both subject and object clear light exist in that paragraph that you're explaining right there. Is that right? Okay, um, let's see. Uh, likewise, when the ordinary mind beings, the clear light mind, that's talking about the mind realizing emptiness, is exposed to the realization of emptiness. That's the objective clear light. The stains on the mind, the subject clear light, that the stains on the mind are removed, but that clear light mind is not, doesn't go out of existence. Then you know, the subject clear light mind, right. If it says clear like mind, it's talking about a consciousness, the subject. Okay. True cessation ultimately refers to the emptiness of the subtlest clear light mind that has become an awakened mind. Although this is not explicitly stated in the third turning, the clear light mind mentioned in the third turning ultimately refers to the clear light mind of highest Yogatantra. Here we see that the three turnings of the Dharma wheel are not disconnected teachings on different topics. You see how His Holiness is pulling things from Sutra, from Tantra, that not everybody is going to see the connection. He's pulling them together and showing us the connection. Each turning is closely linked to the previous one. It builds on and unpacks the meaning of the previous turning in more depth and detail. In this way, the Buddha, a skillful and wise teacher, gradually leads us to deeper understandings. Similarly, each turning hints at deeper explanations found in the future turnings. To summarize, in the context of the three turnings, from the sutra perspective, Buddha nature is of two types. Okay, so we've been through this before. It's reviewing. So first, the emptiness of the mind, the object that is perceived, as explained in the perfection of wisdom sutras, in the second turning. And it's to realize that emptiness. That's why we study all the philosophy and syllogisms and debating, all that stuff. Okay? And then the other perspective of, uh, or the other type of Buddha nature from the sutra viewpoint is the mind that is the basis of that emptiness. 
So this undefiled mind has existed beginninglessly and will transform into the liberating paths that perceive emptiness. So here it's called an undefiled mind because the uh, defilements are not in the nature of that mind. But when they're talking about the mind of an ordinary being, it is a defiled mind. Okay, so we have to know how to look at things here. Saying this mind is clear light means that the defilements are not an inherent property of this mind. Okay, And, and that's important because if the mind inherently existed, if the defilements were an inherent or an inherent part of the mind, then liberation awakening would be impossible. Yeah, because there would be, you know, if something inherently exists, it it uh, it does not arise, it does not cease, it is not affected by any causes and conditions. So that would mean that the grasping at inherent existence would not have an antidote. Yeah, it can't be affected by any other thing, so it has no antidote. So liberation would be impossible. Thank goodness that isn't the case. As uh, okay, as the third turning uh, leads us to understand. The emptiness of the mind is the natural Buddha nature, and the basis of this emptiness is the transforming Buddha nature. Okay, natural Buddha nature, the emptiness of the mind, yeah, transforming Buddha nature, qualities of the conventional mind that can go on to full awakening. Okay. Both are Buddha nature according to the sutra explanation. Furthermore, there is an extremely subtle mind that is the clear light mind and the seed of wisdom. It too is Buddha nature. The full explanation of this mind and how to access it is presented in Tantra, specifically in Highest Yoga Tantra. And it's by making manifest that um, fundamental innate uh, clear light mind, by making it manifest and using it to realize emptiness, that's what is able to totally eliminate all the defilements from the mind. Not only the afflictive obscurations, but also the cognitive obscurations. Um back at the first sentence on this page. Mm-hmm. Is that sentence, the word ultimately there, meaning at the deepest level? Yeah. Okay. It, it can mean the deepest level. It can also mean when you're asking what is true cessation, you know, ultimately you're going to come to emptiness. Yeah. Because... Uh, you know, initially, true cessation seems to be defined as uh, the absence of ignorance, anger, and attachment from the nature of the mind. Okay, but that that is a little bit different than, you know, what 
this is saying is when how did this there's two ways of seeing true cessation, or there's two ways of seeing nirvana. One is it's the absence of ignorance, anger, and attachment. In that case, it's the negation of something that once existed. Ignorance, anger, and attachment. Okay. But when you say the nature of the mind is emptiness or that or that true cessation ultimately refers to the emptiness of the mind, okay, the emptiness is the negation of something that has never existed. So the ordinary way of talking about um, nirvana and this way are different, yeah. So then they have wild debates about it. We won't go into it, yeah. But there's, there, they, it's one of the big, hot debating topics. So when we first got to the point about, you know, we, we must have this clear light mind to be the, the subject that, that will be empty, I was wondering why it couldn't be the transforming Buddha nature that was defined back in page 298, but then we came back to that at the end, so I'm a little confused. Mm-hmm. Earlier, when we first met the topic of the transforming Buddha nature, mm-hmm. it was explained as it consisting of conditioned phenomena that can transform into a Buddha's wisdom yes. truth body. Yes. But this isn't now what we're saying. This isn't the clear light mind. Okay. Uh, it seems like there's two different explanations here that... Yeah, well, remember the first one... The Buddha nature is the qualities that can go on to awakening. That's from the sutra viewpoint. I thought, though, that what was being introduced initially here was that the Tathagatagarbha in the third turning still is the clear light mind. I thought that that was still even within the sutra perspective. or it, Yeah, it's, it's as clear light, but that doesn't explain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and people could understand it as clear. Yeah, it's just, they say, yeah, it's the clear light mind, but there's no explanation of it. Mm-hmm. So His Holiness is saying you have to look to Tantra. The two things are not contradictory, okay? Because when we talk about the um, what goes on from now until awakening, yeah, it, it has... You know, we have the qualities that can become the qualities of the a Buddha's wisdom dharmakaya. Yeah. What this is referring to, but see that that's including bodhicitta, compassion, love, and da 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 da. Here, when we're talking about the subtlest mind, we're talking about it in the context of using it to realize emptiness and how that mind is the actual thing that frees us from both obscurations. So it's, you know, Bodhi, the seeds of bodhicitta, of course, are on that mind, but bodhicitta isn't manifest at that moment. Love isn't manifest. We're talking about the subject clear light mind that's realizing the object emptiness. Okay. So not contradictory. But when we talk about the mind of love or compassion, that's a coarse mind. Okay? That one's not continuing um, 
in us uninterruptedly to awakening, the seed of compassion will continue uninterruptedly. But that conscious mind doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Now, the link between sutra and tantra, maybe this will clarify something. Yeah? Just to clarify, so the transforming Buddha nature is not the clear light mind. They're not synonymous. It, you can say the clear light, the subtlest clear light mind is the transforming Buddha nature. You can say that. Yeah? No problem with that. Okay? Yeah. The transforming Buddha nature includes other qualities. Okay? When it says it is the seed, that is the clear light mind and the seed of wisdom. We're getting to that. Well, okay. Just be patient. We're getting to it. His Holiness explains it in the next few pages. Okay, I read them and I didn't get it. I was trying. Well, we'll read them again. <laughs> yeah. So this way of describing the Buddha nature as both the object emptiness and the subject mind is confirmed by the seventh Dalai Lama in his commentary to the pristine wisdom on the verge of transcendence sutra, which is what we recite every Tuesday. Okay, so the Dalai Lama, the seventh Dalai Lama wrote a commentary to that, which Geshe-la and I wanted to translate, but mm, next life. Okay, so uh, he ex- the seventh Dalai Lama explains that the pristine wisdom on the verge of transcendence refers to both the pristine wisdom realizing the ultimate nature as one approaches nirvana, so you haven't attained nirvana yet, but you're on the path going there, so it refers both to that mind and the pristine wisdom realizing suchness that is at the heart of the practice that one must engage in at all times, including at the point of death. Okay, so... The pristine wisdom on the verge of transcendence refers both, okay, to the pristine wisdom realizing the ultimate nature, so it's a mind realizing emptiness that is approaching awakening when you're on path of seeing, path of meditation, and the continuation of that pristine wisdom realizing suchness that is the thing that we we have to at some point develop single pointedly on and uh including at the time of death you know the yogis uh in in doing tantra meditation when they get you know really far advanced on the path they can make manifest that subtle clear light mind and then they meditate on it and or meditate with it and realize emptiness, which is because that mind is the subtlest mind, yeah, it it 
when the obscurations are cleared from it, they're cleared from the whole mind. And if you just clear the obscurations from the grosser levels of mind, you haven't cleared it from all the consciousnesses, and so you don't have the, the full true cessation. Mm-hmm. So also kind of underlying this is, you know, the difference between when you practice Mahayana, when you practice, um, you know, the Shravaka or solitary realizer vehicle, what's, what's going on there. And here it's saying that you have to, you know, have that the heart of the practice that one must engage in, including when you're dying. Okay, so it's not like, okay, when I die, then I can stop practicing. It's, you know, I put all this energy in, and then finally I can feel like I'm dying. Now I can just relax and die in peace. I don't have to meditate. Well, actually, you know, if, if you're a practitioner of the highest yoga tantra, and you want to clear all this garbage from your mind, then meditating while you're dying and in the bardo is is perfect. It's like the time, the chance you have been waiting for your whole life. And this is uh, this is the way that Jason Kappa attained awakening. Okay, so he didn't do it during his life. He did it at the time, you know, of dying, because at the time of dying, all the gross consciousnesses are losing force. They're dissolving. Yeah. So it's, it's a very, it's a very easy way to not have a lot of afflictions manifest in your mind. Okay. It's like when you're falling asleep. The consciousness is similarly or dissolving in a way. And when you're in deep sleep, there's no conscious afflictions manifest in the mind at that time. Okay. So at the time of death, then you're actually in the really, really subtle level of mind. When you're sleeping, you're, the mind's subtler, but the, not the subtlest mind. Okay. So in his commentary, the seventh Dalai Lama quotes that sutra okay, that we recite. If you realize the nature of your mind, it is wisdom. Therefore, cultivate thorough discrimination not to seek Buddhahood elsewhere. Okay, we remember that line. So we don't go looking for Buddha, you know, Buddhism or Buddhahood in a book. Yeah, we don't go looking for it in the clothes. We don't go looking for it in uh, our, um, what do you call it, our uh, place in line. Okay, we don't go looking for it, yeah, under the rocks or in the, the bottom, below the Buddha hall or something like that or inside a statue or you know, you don't go looking for it in your, in your teacher's head or your teacher's hair. Okay. So what is the nature of that mind? 
He says it has three characteristics. Okay, one, the nature of that mind is such that it is devoid of all conceptual elaborations. Okay, so that one way, devoid of all conceptual elaborations. There's many different kinds of conceptual elaborations. So one of them is inherent existence. So saying that mind is empty of that conceptual uh, um, uh, elaboration means that it's empty of inherent existence. The grasping at true existence is also a, collab, uh, a conceptual elaboration. So is the appearance of veiled truths. So is the appearance of subject and object. For example, when you have a conceptual realization of under of emptiness. Okay, so the nature of the, that mind is such that it is devoid of all conceptual elaborations, meaning here it's empty of inherent existence. And two, since the ultimate nature of all phenomena is undifferentiable, the nature of that mind is all-pervading. Okay, so the nature of all phenomena is undifferentiable, caliphrastic, except... Yeah, um, it's undifferentiable because the nature of every object is empty, okay? And as I've said before, if you realize emptiness non-conceptually, the emptiness of one object and the next object, you can't tell them apart, okay? So the nature, yeah, the empty of emptiness of the nature of your mind is the same as the emptiness of the nature of the Buddha's nine and the emptiness of the nature of Donnie's mind. Okay. Okay. And so the nature of that mind is, is all-pervading, yeah, because everything is empty of inherent existence, yeah. So the empty nature of our mind is the same as the empty nature of the table. But clearly the mind is different than the table. Mm. Okay, and then the, the third characteristic of that mind is the nature is not polluted by any adventitious conceptualizations. So it's not polluted by any afflictions. So the afflictions have been eradicated from that mind. He then turns to the Tathagatagarbha, saying that it exists in the mental continuum of each sentient being. And here the Tathagatagarbha refers to three factors. Okay? So don't get these lists of three mixed up, although there is overlap. So, one, the factor that allows for the Buddha's awakening activity to interact with sentient beings. So, this factor is called the essence or seed, garbha, as in Tathagata garbha, of Buddhahood, because it allows for sentient beings to enjoy and benefit from the Buddha's awakening activities which are the fruits of their awakening. 
Okay, so the factor that allows for the Buddha's awakening activity to interact with sentient beings. So it's a factor in our mind that is receptive to the Buddhist teachings. So we all have that factor. In some of us, that factor is more developed and we're very receptive. In others of us, that factor isn't so developed and, you know, we're not as receptive. Yeah. Clearly, as we practice and understand more, we become more receptive. Yeah. That's if you're gaining correct understandings. If you're misunderstanding what the Buddha said, you're not, you're going to be less receptive. Okay. So it's the aspect of the mind that is receptive and has the capacity to receive the Buddha's various awakening activities and influence. Yeah. So it's the difference. Well, let me finish the paragraph. This is the potency. Yeah. A potency of the, it's a, is a impermanent phenomena that is an abstract factor. So it's not form. It's not consciousness. So this is the potency that exists in sentient beings that allows for the Buddha's awakening activity to interact with sentient beings and stimulate their progress on the path. So you know how sometimes you might be listening to a teaching and then something clicks like this and you go, oh, you know, I've heard that like gazillion times, but now I understand. That's an interaction of the Buddha's enlightening activities with the receptivity in your mind. Yeah? So there's something receptive. Sometimes, you know, we might study and our mind feels like a block of concrete. Not so receptive at that time. Other times, you read just a sentence or two and you're going, whoa, because all of a sudden you're seeing connections and something's really, you know, you're grokking it. You, you know the word grokking, okay? Even the young ones, you know that word? Huh? Only because of being here. Only because of being here, okay. Yeah. Okay. Then the second factor is the factor of the sphere of reality, namely the mind's emptiness of inherent existence. Okay, so here we are back at the natural nirvana of the mind, its emptiness of inherent existence. This factor is the emptiness of the mind that is not free from defilements. Because we're talking about factors that sentient beings have. So it has to be an emptiness of a mind that is not free of defilements. It is called the essence of Buddhahood because the nature of the Buddha's dharmakaya and the nature of sentient beings' minds are the same in terms of not being inherently polluted by afflictions. Okay, so our, our mind, the Buddha's name, 
the same in terms of not being inherently existent at all and in terms of not being inherently afflicted by afflictions. Okay. We are, as ordinary beings, afflicted by afflictions. Okay. But not inherently because they are adventitious. Okay. In terms of the mind being empty of existing from its own side, there is no difference between a Buddha and a sentient being. In that way, sentient beings share the Buddha's nature. Hmm? Okay, then the third factor, the factor that is the seed that serves as the basis for the actualization of the three Buddha bodies. So this factor is called the essence of Buddhahood because from this cause, the resultant three Buddha bodies emerge. Okay? So it's a seed that is serves as the basis for the actualization of the Buddha's Dharmakaya, uh, Sambhokakaya, Nirmanakaya. Okay? So it's, it's what allows us to become Buddhas with the three kayas, okay? So this is the subject clear light mind described in the third turning, which transforms into the three Buddha bodies. So the subject clear light mind, its continuum becomes the uh, wisdom dharmakaya, the emptiness of of that mind becomes the nature dharmakaya, yeah, and then from that awakened mind, you know, uh, then that Buddha can manifest the sambhokakaya, the the enjoy the enjoyment body and the emanation body. Okay, so usually a seed is an abstract composite. But in this case, it refers to a mind, okay, the subtlest clear light mind. Here, the Tathagatagarbha is a conditioned phenomena. In other words, it's affected by causes and conditions. The, the, yeah. It's a conditioned phenomena, the clear light mind that will become a Buddha's mind. So this clear light mind has existed beginninglessly, will continue endlessly, and is the basis of the emptiness of the mind. Why is it called clear light? Clear light implies that the actual nature of the mind is undefiled. The stains that presently cover the mind are adventitious. They have not entered into the nature of the mind, and are not an inherent part of that clear light mind. Okay, as Maitreya says in Gyulama, uh, Sublime Continuum, this clear and luminous nature of mind is as immutable as space. It is not afflicted by desire and so on, the adventitious defilements that spring from false conceptions. Okay, 
So when you just have that clear, cognizant nature of the mind, yeah, that's the Buddha nature. Now, one way of talking about the Buddha nature. You, that is also included in the transforming Buddha nature because the continuity of that clear light mind goes all the way to full awakening and beyond. So the clear light mind is not permanent. Okay? Now we may want to make it permanent. Oh, but if it's the ultimate consciousness, you know, to, to really be uh, something, it's got to be, you know, if it's really immutable, it's got to be permanent and not change. If it were permanent, then we could never become Buddhas. This is talking about a consciousness. Yeah, and that consciousness has to get purified. It has to get developed. Yeah, and so it, it's imp- an impermanent phenomena. But it is um, eternal. Okay, so... This can be confusing because in the West we also, we often use the word impermanent to mean that, uh, something stops and goes out of existence. In Buddhism, you know, some impermanent things cease and, and go out of existence. Some impermanent things just change, but they're in eternal like the clear and knowing, clear and cognizant nature of the mind. Okay, so things can, let's do the four, the four points, okay. So what is impermanent and eternal? What's an example? Something that's impermanent and eternal. The the continuity of the clear light mind. Okay, the continuity of the clear light mind. What is something that is permanent and eternal? The emptiness of that mind. Okay. What is something impermanent and eternal? No, we did. We did. We do that one. What is in? In yeah. What is impermanent? And not eternal. Okay, the it, something that is impermanent but not eternal. What did you say? The afflictions on Yeah, the afflictions. Yeah. And what is permanent and not eternal? The emptiness of those Yeah, the emptiness of those afflictions. Okay. Yeah. So seeing, doing that is very helpful, isn't it? It helps you get a better idea. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because the seventh Dalai Lama, oh, wait a minute, did I? In the sense of the clear light mind being a continuity, nothing new is created at awakening. The obscurations and defilements have simply been eradicated. At this point, the mind, which has existed since beginningless time and whose nature is undefiled, becomes the omniscient mind. 
Okay, because the seventh Dalai Lama is ostensibly speaking in terms of sutra, the Buddha nature he speaks of is the clear light mind described in Sutrayana. Okay, so that's going to be the mind that realizes emptiness. Yeah, yeah, the clear the uh, yeah the clear light mind realizing emptiness. It's subtler than our gross consciousnesses, but it's not the subtlest mind. Okay, looking deeper, I believe that he is actually referring to the fundamental and a clear light mind that has been present in sentient beings since beginningless time and goes on endlessly. The continuity of this mind will attain awakening because a clear exposition of the fundamental innate clear light mind that acts as the seed of the three Buddha bodies is not found in sutra, a practitioner must seek it in tantra, especially in highest yoga tantra, which contains an extensive explanation of the fundamental innate clear light mind that has existed beginninglessly and continues on until awakening. Yeah, so there's something special about that mind. Yeah, that there's something very special about that mind, you know. And it's not talked about in sutra, it's only talked about in tantra. Yeah, and it's the thing that has to be made manifest and used uh, to realize emptiness directly. Without saying it directly, the seventh Dalai Lama is directing us to the tantric explanations of the innate clear light mind. In this way, the sequence of the three turnings of the Dharma wheel leads us from the basic teaching of the four truths to in-depth explanations of the third and fourth truths and then eventually to the highest yoga tantra. Dzogchen and Mahamudra usually refer to a subtle mind, Rigpa or the clear light mind, as the Buddha nature. Among Galupas, the Sutrayana Buddha nature is usually discussed from the perspective of the ornament of clear realizations, where it refers to the emptiness of the mind, not to the subtlest clear light mind itself, as Tantra speaks of. However, here, commenting on a sutra, the seventh Dalai Lama, who is a traditional Galupa, also describes the Buddha nature in a way similar to that of Dzogchen and Mahamudra. So he's here pointing out, you know, what is going to come in volume 10 about how Dzogchen, Mahamudra, the wisdom of bliss and emptiness, all these things come to the same point. Yeah. Okay, then the reflections to think about. When the sutra says, if you realize the nature of your mind, it is wisdom. Therefore, uh, cultivate thorough discrimination not to seek Buddhahood elsewhere. What does it mean? 
Yeah, we say that every Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, what are the three characteristics that the seventh Dalai Lama points to as the characteristics of that wisdom mind? So we just went through those. What is the sequence of teachings in the three turnings of the Dharma wheel that lead us to the tantric explanation of the fundamental innate clear light mind? Okay, so that was what I just read in the last paragraph, or the second to last paragraph. Okay, let's see. Questions? When the Sutrayana speaks of the um, clear light mind, isn't it speaking of something that's uh, um, beginningless and endless continuum? That's a subtle mind. How would it differ from what we call the innate clear mind? Mm. The the fundamental innate clear light mind is the subtlest mind that is always present in a sentient being. Yeah. You can't get any consciousness that is more subtle than that. I, I don't think from the sutra explanations I've heard, I, they don't mention the subtlest mind. Yeah. They just say the mind realizing emptiness. It says that they mention clear, the clear light mind. Yeah. But remember, clear light mind can mean em clear light can mean emptiness. It can refer to the clear and cognizant nature of the mind. So it's not talking about the mind. subtler. It's in Sutrayana, it's not talking about a subtlest consciousness. Yeah, because this subtlest consciousness is it's only discussed in tantra. Yeah. Mm hmm. To follow on that, when we talk about the clear light mind of death, yeah, is is that from a tantric point of view? That's not a sutra presentation. Yeah, usually when we say the clear light of death, we're talking about the clear light that manifests at that point of death, which is that uh, subtlest mind. Yeah. Related to this. How does how do the um, concentration, like the meditative absorptions, relate to the clear light mind as presented in tantra? Okay, yeah, interesting question because form realm, formless realms, those minds are said to be subtler than our desire realm. Yeah, because our desire realm consciousness, we're all over the place chasing external objects. Yeah, form realm consciousness. You know, they're uh, they're one of the four dhyanas, formless realm consciousness. They're even subtler yet. Yeah, the sub the form realm formless realm consciousness. They don't even cognize uh, material. You know, material objects. I mean, very subtle that way. But none of them are that subtlest clear light mind that goes on to awakening. Because you can see that you're born in the form or formless realm for a period of time as long as that karma lasts. And when that karma's over, then your mind becomes gross again. Yeah, you usually wind up in the desire realm somewhere. 
Yeah. So just the subtle minds in form and formless realms, this is where, you know, people can get hooked and say, oh, that is so peaceful, that is so calm, that must be nirvana. Okay, and you get, you get hooked by that, but it's not the subtlest mind. Yeah? So to follow up on that, how far could you go on the path, like path of seeing, path of meditation, using a meditative absorption? that's described in Sutrayana. Okay. Usually, uh, you would use the, the fourth uh, dhyana. Yeah. Usually, when, when you're meditating in Sutrayana, you wouldn't use the formless realm concentrations because they're, they're too, you're too spaced out. Yeah. So, you, you're usually using a form realm concentration. Yeah. So then using that fourth level concentration, mm -hmm. how far can you progress okay. in the path? Well, according to Sutrayana, you can go all the way to awakening. According to Tantrayana, you can't go all the way to awakening with that mind. At some point, you have to enter the Vajrayana vehicle because you have to learn how to make manifest that subtlest mind. How do we understand the self-centered attitude and how does it exist in this mind from the different, from gross all the way to the fundamental mm. right mind? The self-centered attitude? Yes. It can, sometimes a self-centered attitude is with a gross mind. You know, it's like, that person insulted me. Why are they bugging me? I want more chocolate. I want some recognition. I've done so much and nobody says thank you. You know, that, that's the, that's the coarse mind. Okay. Self-centeredness. Very obvious, isn't it? Okay. Then, so that's kind of the coarse self-centeredness. The subtler self-centeredness is when we are looking out for our own liberation without wanting to attain full Buddhahood uh, that will enable us to be of the greatest benefit to all sentient beings. So this it's a subtle kind of self-centeredness because it's not the gross one that's, you know, involved with chocolate and boyfriends. But it's, it's subtler and it's just concerned with me and my liberation. But... Just because we use the word subtle, I mean, the word subtle and subtlest has different meanings in different contexts. Yeah. So here we're not talking about the subtlest mind. Um, that, that's realizing emptiness in Tantra when we talk about the subtle self-centeredness that is attached to our own enlightenment. Because my understanding, the gross self-centeredness exists even beings in the form and the formless realms all have this gross self-centeredness. Uh, self I am more important than others. No, that's just more important, yes. But in terms of um, 
attachment to desire realm things now. But, you know, they think they're more important. So how does that becomes like, can it get eradicated when... That, that's, that is done through the bodhicitta. So you it, cannot actually practice that during the form and formless realms if it's not really manifesting? You can't practice what? To eradicate the gross self-centeredness? Yeah, and the, gro the gross self-centeredness, yeah. Well, there, you know, if, if you're talking about like the eight worldly concerns, that's going to be um, eradicated by the wisdom realizing emptiness, fully eradicated. But certainly when we meditate on the disadvantages of the eight worldly concerns, we're applying an antidote to them. Yeah, that doesn't completely eliminate them from our mind, but it helps us control a bit. That makes some sense to you? Yeah. Okay, but the, the self-centered mind and the self-grasping ignorance are different. So even though the um, innate, um, subtlest, clear light mind is very subtle, it's what goes from life to life. So it's what carries the seeds of all the afflictions, right? So all of these things, even the self-grasping is... And self-centeredness yeah. is, is there with that mind. Yeah. So, so when she said the beings in the form and formless realms don't have self-centeredness, what she meant was it's not gross self-centeredness, but it's there in the mind stream. It hasn't been eradicated. Right. I, I guess I was asking, it is, it can be, those things can be with a subtle mind because they're with the... Yeah. Yeah. As seeds, still, right? Yeah, that's for you know when we talk about the subtlest mind that's defiled. That's part of the stuff that's defiling it. Okay, so let's stop here, and then next time. Okay, nothing to be removed. So we're going back to the, in this, that, uh, yeah, th this, this, I remember when His Holiness was talking about it, you know, and he, he mentions this one verse that we go into in the next section. And he said, you know, it's in two different texts by the same author. It's got to mean different things. Yeah. And then he went on to, to talk about it. Okay. Okay, so then the question can come, how to use what we just studied in your daily practice? Okay, when I gave the, the, um, the motivation at the beginning of the talk, that's one way to use it. In other words, you know, if you're putting yourself down, think about that you also have the um, the Buddha nature, you know, the natural Buddha nature, the um, tra the transforming Buddha nature. You have that clear light, subtlest mind. You know, think about that. So it's it's uh, you know you not only have them because you could say, well, a pig also has it. Yes, the pig does, but, you know, 
Yeah, we also have a mind that has intelligence, that can think about the Dharma, that can understand the Dharma. A pig doesn't have that, you know. Although I don't know, maybe Porky, Porky Pig, you know. Yeah. Who was Porky Pig? He was floating around there with Mickey. What? Bugs Bunny and, and Porky Pig. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, we, we have in, you know, our, our intelligence and, you know, our, uh, when he was talking about the factor in the mind that enables us to benefit from the Buddha's enlightening activities, we have that factor and it's active, you know, when we hear the teaching, something's happening, and, you know, maybe we'll think about things a little bit more, and we'll, you know, understand better. So, uh, you know, you can think about how you have those things, and then think about it also to help you um, generate compassion and fortitude for other people that, you know, people do all this amazing, crazy stuff, because they have no idea that they have the Buddha nature, you know? And the only idea they have is how can I get the most happiness for myself in this lifetime? Yeah. So anything, you know, beyond this lifetime under or understanding future lives, understanding karma, disadvantages of self, self-centeredness, none of this. Most of the people in the world you know, forget it. The, the mind is completely, you know, like this. So, you know, to remember this lifetime, that's why it's called a precious human life. You know, we're a little bit more awake. And other living beings have that potential too. So even though they may be doing things that are, you know, really dysfunctional right now, they have that potential, and hopefully in a future life, you know, it will be able to, to manifest a bit. But in the meantime, have compassion for how they suffer because of it. Okay, so use this teaching in your daily life. Also for the um, methods to equalize, to generate bodhicitta, the first point of um, equalizing self and others that mm-hmm. they also have the Buddha nature. Yeah. The same as me. Yeah, everybody does. And it isn't like the somebody was born without it and then they get it. It's not something, you know, that, that you, you order online and that is extra added to your mind. You know, it's something that is the nature of the mind. Okay.